Welcome to the Jack Weston MCAT Podcast with your host, Phil Hawkins. And Asai Calderon Muñiz. All right. This is going to be a little bit of a weird week for this episode. Um, some of you guys may be, uh, if you guys are watching on video, some of you guys may be looking and saying like, hmm, that doesn't look like Azai. She has changed. Um, Azai had a little bit of a family emergency. And so we're doing kind of a special podcast episode this week. Um, and I invited one of my favorite people, one of my best friends from med school, um, Alexis. I want to say Bowder, but that's not right. Um, but my best one of my, so it is still Alexis Bowder. I know you got married, but like, I'm like, but was it still Alexis Bowder? He kept it. Um, the, the power move. Um, but, uh, I just wanted to welcome Alexis to the podcast. Um, I don't know if you want to introduce yourself a little bit, but yeah. Uh, thanks. It's exciting. I've never done a podcast, so bear with us. Um, I, was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. I did all my schooling there. That's where I met Phil. Um, and he's one of my favorite people to talk to just throughout anything. Um, and then I moved to Wisconsin for my residency in general surgery. And I've done some global surgery work and got my master's in public health from Harvard and did a two-year global surgery research uh, with the program in global surgery and social change. And now I'll be headed to Iowa for a peed surgery fellowship at the end of this year. So that's me. <laughs> I feel like that is so much time and work and years that you have you've you've rolled through that spiel enough times you're just like I let me get it out I can do it in one breath um (laughs) but yeah so the the reason I kind of like wanted to invite you on the show is because you have a lot of really interesting experiences when it comes to being a physician um when I think about what you do I like the global surgery stuff is the first thing that that comes to mind um, and so you obviously got to like have a lot of surgery stuff kind of going on, but, um, I was just wondering, like, tell us, tell me a little bit about global surgery. Cause I know that when I was pre-med and honestly, even like first and second year, I would have been like global surgery. I don't know what that is. Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't until like 2015 <clears throat> until people really thought that, so global health had historically been a lot of. Uh, maternal medicine, infectious disease, and primary care specialties. So when you talk to, when you rotate like OB-GYN or infectious disease, they've been sort of pioneers in global health for a really long time. And then in 2015, uh, the late Dr. Farmer and a number of his colleagues were like, you need, we need global surgery. There's so many things that need to be treated around the world. Um, And they wrote the Lancet Commission on Global Surgery, which I was fortunate to be um, sort of a med student with the group, one of the groups that was leading that. I took a year off in my med school to move to Haiti for a year because I wanted to get more exposure to global surgery. Um, and I think it really encompasses a lot of different definitions, but mostly it's uh, people who are working abroad to sort of improve access to surgical care. And there's a lot of different ways that that can happen. I've done it in a variety of forums, working with an NGO, traveling for a one week sort of long-term mission group, and then um, doing a global surgery elective in my residency training. So it means a lot of things to a lot of different people, but it's a very exciting field. And it's now like very established. I think in the last seven years, it's really fun to watch. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize it was so recent is, is like, kind of like my view. I mean, even like you saying that now, I'm like, oh, I did, you're on the cutting edge, Alexis. Of course, of course, that makes sense knowing you. Um, But um, yeah, there is history that dates back to like the 1800s and the first global surgery goes back to uh, 
someone, a physician who was working in China and performing some of the cataract and eye operation surgeries way before his time. And then the plastic surgeons have been doing it for a long time, but the global surgery movement, I think really picked up in 2015, um, after that big Lancet commission that said it was safe and affordable and we should do it. That's, that's really interesting. I know you said that you spent like a year in Haiti. Um, Mm -hmm. and I know, I remember that, like you taking a year off of med school. Um, I think, I think that's one of the reasons that, um, we like as, as a group, I want to say this is that we came together, but to be honest, like we were kind of a friend group in med school before you made that decision, but like you hung out with a lot of the, I want to call it nerds, the MD PhDs, the one who are going to be in school forever anyway. And so I don't know if that (laughs) influenced you at all, where you're like, Oh, I'll just take a year off. It's just one year. It's not an extra, you know, decade, but, um, yeah. How, like, I don't know if I ever actually talked to you about that decision of just like taking a year off. Um, like how, like that, that's kind of a strange thing. There's not a lot of people who take a year off in like the middle of med school to go and do this. Yeah. And it wasn't something, so I had always been interested in global health in college. I studied abroad in Costa Rica to learn medical Spanish. Um, I'd always been interested in global something. I didn't always know it was health in college. And then I also wanted to get a PhD, but I wanted to do it in public health. And I was very snooty and was like, I'm not going to do public health in Nebraska. Like I'm not getting my PhD there. They don't have a lot of global health experience. I want to go somewhere. Um, if I'm going to do it, get my PhD in this. I want to have it at a place where they have been doing it for a long time. So like Tulane or, um, the Harvard and Hopkins have some pretty established programs, but I remember finding out that I was interested in surgery and not knowing if I wanted to be a neurosurgeon or a general surgeon. Those are pretty different paths, I think Mm -hmm. after my third year. And so I found this opportunity and I would have sold my soul to get into it. Um, and I applied to this program in Harvard thinking, oh, there's no way they're going to take me. I had like a 15 minute interview and I was like, well, that was super short. There's no way that I'm going to get accepted to this program. And I, thankfully I was, and then that was sort of the end of the decision. I was like, I've got to do this. This is like a sort of life altering opportunity to get to. And that was when I got involved with all of the things that I do now. Um, so I also had reason started dating my now husband again, <laughs> um, who I've been <laughs> again. high school. And, and then I was in February and then in March, I think I was like, oh, I think I'm going to be moving to Haiti for a year. And, and I did, I bought a one-way ticket, which is not recommended for any global travel to buy a one-way ticket to any country. Um, I got on a plane and moved to Haiti for the year. So it didn't seem like a decision. It just felt like the, the right thing to do. And it all sort of fell into place, but I had also emailed two other, because I wanted to take that year to decide between the two specialties and emailed two other, um, physicians who did global surgery, one in Seattle and one at UNC, Anthony Charles. And they both said, sure, you can come, but we don't have any funding. So you'd have to figure that out. But then I got into this uh, program and it was seemed a little bit more established. So I went that way. Yeah. So you were kind of torn between those two. Was it global surgery that pushed, pushed you to the more general is just because that was an option or. Yeah. Well, so in my mind, well, when I lived there for the year, I hung out with this amazing general surgeon who did everything. And um, he never yelled in the OR. He had four kids and his wife was a PhD and they had both been in the Peace Corps and just seemed to be living. The, there were a lot of things that they did that I didn't think was possible. One was like bringing your family to another country and living there. I was like, this is incredible. I didn't know this was an option. Um, 
he just having a surgeon who didn't yell at his trainees. <laughs> <laughs> just that in and of itself. Yeah. And who really loved what he was doing and was happy, like even while facing some pretty challenging situations. And then we would have visiting surgeons come throughout the year. Part of my job was hosting them. So I would host like neurosurgeons from Emory and Irish orthopedic surgeons and plastic surgeons from Milwaukee. And I learned then when the neurosurgeons came, when I didn't want to be in any of their cases, and I'd rather be doing all the general surgery stuff, even if it was on the floor that I was like, okay, yeah, I think it's general surgery. But one of the factors that played in was that neurosurgery seemed to be pretty um, resource intensive for a global setting. It is more common now, and there's a lot of specialties across the surgical specialties that are now becoming more globally accepted and done. There's like a global neurosurgery group, a global ENT group, but that was some of the deciding factors. But mostly I just loved being in the general surgery OR and in the abdomen. The brain didn't seem as, it's just one color and it doesn't seem yeah. as much fun. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so interesting. I, I'm, I'm a neuro guy. At, at heart. Um, and I'm like, but the yeah. brain's so full of mystery, but that might not be yeah. as fun. I feel like for surgery where it's like, I want to go in and fix something, but you're kind of like looking like this is, I don't know how this works. Like that makes it a little bit less exciting to be in there fixing something that you're, is just kind of weird. Um, yeah. Even you talk to have a Haitian uh, resident who would argue very vehemently against you that the neuros live just exactly what you said. It's like unmapped and unknown and it makes us who we are and the brain is the most beautiful thing. So be great to operate on it. And I was like, okay, that's fine. But I really like the abdomen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I know that you spent some time in, I, th there's like so many different things I want to talk about. Like, I know you've been to lots of places and not just Haiti. Um, but I also don't let me forget. I want to kind of come back and talk about this other person and family and like kind of how that fits together. Cause I know, you know, talking about your, your husband and kind of like your life there. So don't let me like forget about that. But there's so many things that I want to talk about that are just super interesting, but like, what are some of the other places you've been that have kind of like stuck out in your mind as like a super interesting experience? Uh, so I went to Nepal for a month for a global surgery elective. And that was really unique because as a resident, I didn't, there were other residents, Nepali residents there. So I didn't operate, but I traveled with one of my favorite surgical attendings in Milwaukee. And he had been there twice already. Um, and they were creating what are called uh, arteriovenous fistulas. And the first time he went there, he just taught them and made some of these um, arteriovenous fistulas. The second time we were there, now they were seeing all the complications. And again, he was just teaching. He wasn't doing a lot of the operating. And it was really cool just to watch the progression of what it means to actually teach in another country and how that can spread across. I mean, there are three, I think cardiothoracic vascular surgeons when he started. And now I went my third year of residency. So we're about three years out from that and they have like seven or eight and they're doing their own research. And now they're doing, um, interventional radiology procedures over there. And we've taken a vascular surgeon and trauma surgeon to Nepal. So I think that, and it was just a completely different culture too, that I had never, you know, spent a lot of time in the Caribbean and South and Central America, but I'd never been over to, to Asia and, Oh, that's not true. I had been to India, but I found India to be very overwhelming because there are so many different cultures and states mm -hmm. and Nepal is more of a cohesive culture. So I thought it was really incredible. Yeah, that's super. When I, th when I think global surgery and like stories and stuff from you, I normally think about like going somewhere and doing surgery, like in places where people don't have access to things, but I don't, I never really thought about like as a teaching thing, like mm -hmm. traveling, teaching. And that's, 
that's super exciting. That's super interesting. Um, because I feel like you can impact long-term change rather than going in Mm -hmm. and just kind of like fixing, like fixing this person's problem. Like you fixed this problem for the region now where now there's somebody who can do something. Um, that's super exciting. Um, yeah, it's incredible to watch and I hope to go back to Nepal. And that's sort of where a lot of the more sustainable, a lot of global surgery resident uh, fellowships and programs are trying to move towards is teaching and sustainable efforts rather than just the one week sort of mission trips here and there. And depending on who you talk to, you'll get very differing responses on how, but I've also been to Peru on mission trip one year during my second year operate on a patient at a clinic where they send pediatric surgeons twice a year. Once is our group from Wisconsin, another one's from Michigan, and then gone back the following year and saw the same patient I operated on in follow-up. So you can make the argument that those systems work too, if they're done right. So that was incredible too, because she was completely healed. There was nothing. I was like, oh my gosh, I remember you from last year. Like I, I didn't do the whole operation, but I was in the operation with you and they're going back this September uh, to Peru. So they go, they've been going for 12 to 13 years in a very different model, but still just as I think successful. Um, so yeah, there's so many different ways to do it. And I've been so fortunate to do, I think almost every kind, except for uh, doctors without borders, because they go into very violent and scary places. So I don't think mm-hmm. I'm really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super interesting. Just thinking about like different models and how to make it work and like still possibly having like patient follow-up, even though your patient is on a different continent, that seems yeah. weird. Um, I, I imagine the like, you know, technology is helping with that a lot. I mean, we talk a lot about telehealth, just mm-hmm. generally speaking. Um, and I know COVID pushed that a lot where everyone's like, ah, let me just Skype my doctor or zoom them. Um, but yeah, kind of an interesting you know, uh, change going through that, but yeah, Ooh, there's so many facets to that facets to that. And it's like, so complex. Um, so how, how many countries have you been to then? Uh, I've traveled to 22 and I think I used to keep track, but I have lived in three and worked in a global health sort of fashion in like eight, I think. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's a lot of places. Now, so let's kind of like go back to this, this person with the family, like the physician with the family who was happy and didn't yell. And that like unicorn of a person where you're like, wait a minute, wait, there's a, there's a life that can look like that. Um, I know that um, you and your husband, um, who is also kind of a good friend, but um, you guys had a kid recently and like, mm-hmm. how does, how does that work? Um, just because. I feel like it's hard even for sometimes people who are in the system to kind of understand like how to make a family work. And I know it's probably different for literally everyone. Um, but I don't know if you want to talk about that. You can yeah, feel sure. free to be like, that's too complex. We're still working it out. Um. <laughs> I think um, so. Choosing the right partner is always the most important part because my uh, there are times where I don't come home for 32 hours and my husband, John is amazing and takes care of our son. Um, what I tell med students that I didn't think about when I was applying for the match is that having your family around is so helpful. So my, I, we had our son and at the same time, one of my co-residents had a son and her grandparents, both sets live in Wisconsin. And it's just like, they can come and take 
care of their kids and it, that helps a lot with the cost. But I think you choosing the right partner, sort of planning financially ahead of time so that you can afford some of the help that makes it much easier. So we have like a two part-time like graduate student nannies who come and help out sometimes when I have those like 32 hour stretches. <laughs> and then, um, and then just, I get all my work done during the day and try not to do anything when he's awake at home from like five to seven 30. So work is great. He's very busy now. And then after seven 30, like right now we, I do work stuff. Um, but yeah, it's totally doable. You just have to plan and think about it a little bit. And then in general surgery residency, there are some programs that I think are a little bit friendlier for kids. Like my program director was like, you know, we haven't had any kids born recently. And he was kind of sad about it. Uh, (laughs) He was looking at me. I was like, are you, what are you (laughs) going on here? Um, And then we had five kids born across our program all in the same year, which is great. And we have two or three more and our program's really supportive. And there's like OR techs that are bringing clothes by for me like next week. And um, a lot of residents in general surgery will take their two years of research and have that time to raise their kid. And that's really nice. Cause I got to spend a lot more time with my son, um, that because I had him during my research years. So I got to spend like four months with him, um, instead of just like the six weeks of maternity leave that you get, uh, in general surgery. Yeah. That's, that's something I talk about a lot also with, um, like not just like residencies, but also choosing a med school. I think mm-hmm. having a support network, super useful. Yeah, yeah. Um, cause I, like I went to Nebraska and like, I didn't know anyone in that state, um, when I moved there and just like having, you know, like classmates who had like families around and like somebody came and like, they did dinner with their family and like, I'm like, I want to have dinner with my family. Right. Or just mm-hmm. kind of touch base. I, I want to, I don't think you have to do that as a, like as a physician, as a medical student or, you know, in residency, but and a lot of things like having support makes will make your life easier and richer. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether that means that, you know, there, there's kind of a, another side of that, like creating a support network once you're there. That's also a mm-hmm. thing for sure, because I feel like I the closest friends and the people I'm closest to in my life, a lot of them are those people that I met there. And so just kind of creating our own support network. Um, but it's just like, I can see that same thing, obviously, um, in residency, especially with having kids. Um, yeah. I think having a kid in medical school without having family around, um, would make that very difficult. Although we do know some people who <laughs> we do know that. some. Yeah. And I have a friend who has like a four-year-old daughter and yeah, is in med school and there's, there's a lot of different ways to do it. I would say, find someone who has done it to sort of be there for you as you're going through it. I have a lot of mentors with a lot of different roles in my life. Um, and then, yeah, just, I think the hardest part is financially planning for it and thinking about that too. And I agree, you don't have to go where your family is. And I definitely didn't want to, it's just how the match worked in med school. But I was like, I'm going to get out. I'm going to go to the coasts. And then I'm like, gosh, Wisconsin's just too far away. I want to be closer to home. Yeah. (laughs) Like I want to be with my family. And that didn't change until our son was born. So I was all about still going anywhere else until our son was born. I was like, you know what? I think your family is really nice. And I think we should go closer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you are moving closer. Uh, That factored into my rank list. It was a big, yeah. 
because Iowa was the closest uh, heat surgery program. It's not, I wouldn't, it's not like the most, it's new and it's not one of the like oldest and well-known, but it's definitely closest to our family. And I was like, yeah, I think it's where our family's going to be the happiest. So, yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. Cause I think a lot of people also, especially like pre-med students, um, just like residency in general is kind of weird. And the idea of doing multiple residencies is kind of strange. Um, and so let's just kind of like talk about that, like taking a second and like stepping back and like talking about how, how that works kind of overall with like, cause you obviously have like, you're in the process of like completing residency and like you're buckling back up to do it again is. (laughs) Yeah. Fellowships. I'm not, no one tells you this, but often when you, for surgery, the general surgery, when you match into your residency, there's because I'm kind of too, when I talk to like fourth year med students, I'm talking to one this weekend, there's academic and community. If you mentioned academic center, you're going to have a better chance of getting into the specialties. And it seems like most people are doing a fellowship where they specialize after their general surgery training who are working in some of the bigger cities. Um, and the two sort of historically hardest fellowships to match into are surgical oncology. So, you know, pancreatic cancer, liver cancer, um, and pediatric surgery. So because I'm figured out that I wanted to do that my second year of residency and I knew I wanted to do global health. I decided to do two years of global surgery research um, and get my master's in public health, which is a very common thing in the global health world to get. Um, And it gave me like more statistical background to teach research in other countries. But back to the fellowships, I, I love kids. I knew that I wanted, I just had to go down the long road. I think I would tell all med students, you can work 80 hours a week doing something you absolutely hate and it's going to feel like a hundred hours or you can do 80 hours doing something that you love like 95% of the time. And it's not going to feel like that most of the time. So if I had to do an internal medicine residency, I would be so grumpy. <laughs> I hate rounding for hours. I love doing procedures. I love being in the OR. Um, so signing up for two more years doesn't seem like, although call is getting harder and harder to do, um, doesn't seem like the end of the world to me. Yeah. And so just like you're just, so where do you, where do you want to go eventually? Right. Is, is this like, you know, kind of like down the line, like, obviously I feel like, I feel like you're getting all the puzzle pieces put together, like to have like a a very specialized background to be able to do something specific. Um, I don't know if you have like a particular plan, but I feel like you probably do. (laughs) We usually do. It's been changing since we've had our son in Haiti. So I, in a perfect world, I'd finished my pediatric surgery fellowship, practice um, in an academic pediatric center for a couple of years to sort of get my sort of bearings, doing some complex surgeries, and then move in theory back to Haiti. And for either three months at a time or um, for a couple of years to teach um, Haitian clinicians how to do pediatric surgery and get a better understanding of the burden of pediatric surgical disease in the country, across the entire country. Um, Haiti's not the safest place to travel to, so that <coughs> location might change. And I do a lot of research capacity building sort of virtually, so I could still do that. But that will all be on hold for the two years of fellowship because it's... I think I was alluding to it earlier. There's less of you than there are in residencies. So it's a little bit harder in terms of the time. I'm the only pediatric surgery fellow in Iowa. So everyone will have my number and it'll just kind of be a long, busy two years. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's what comes with the like hyper specialization. I feel like the farther you go, the narrower the field gets, 
yeah. which is which is interesting. Um, I feel like that that puts more responsibility on you, but it also means maybe you can do more um, to like help in different things. Um, and I know I know that's one of the things that drives you is just like you want you want to do the things that need to be done. It doesn't matter if it's hard. Um, you just want to, you want to be there for other people. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Just kind of like looking at that, you know, kind of like bigger picture. Um, I, I, I would say that of all the, the people I know, you're one of the most service oriented, um, which is, (laughs) I like that you're like, wait, what? Um, but it's just kind of an interesting, you know, I feel like you found like a, a perfect, niche for that to kind of like go and pursue that. Um, and I, I absolutely agree with you on the, like, if you're doing what you love, then it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel bad. Um, you know, like it, you know, you can still work a ton and I don't, I think it's, if your goal is to, you want to work nine to five, four days a week and be loaded. Um, I think that, it's really hard to do that as a physician. Yeah. <laughs> if that's your goal, that's not the easiest way to do that. There are other easier yeah. ways for sure. Um, but I think like, you I, tricked into thinking that though. And I think when we started med school, we didn't realize how much of it, it's not a nine to five, even in some of the specialties where the hours are nine to five it feels more like a, a calling and a, what did they call it? Um, it's not a job, it's a profession. And so, or or, yeah, or like, yeah, yeah. profession, something. Because a lot, yeah, like, just it defines you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a master role for those of you who are studying the MCAT and looking for MCAT vocab terms. Um, oh, I didn't know that one. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's because we didn't have to do the psych social portion of the MCAT when we yeah. took the MCAT, which is telling everyone how old we are. Um, <laughs> I'm not to think about when I yeah. med students ask me for advice on their oh gosh sometimes I can't even remember the, it's the shelves when they're clinically I'm like it's been it's been a long time since I took a shelf like <laughs> years so don't ask me how to study for them I don't know yeah. ask the intern I've been yeah doing this for too long now don't get me wrong there are days where it's like gosh I could have been an ED physician twice by now because you have done three years and three years and sometimes people just sort of there are days where it's just like oh man I could have chosen so differently but those days are far and fewer between now that I'm more senior and get to operate most of the time yeah yeah that's so I I know that you kind of like have this feeling of like you know if you're doing what you love it's okay I feel like you kind of were in that mindset in med school, which I don't think everyone was. Um, I feel like you kind of flourished in med school compared to some other people who maybe had a harder time um, just kind of adjusting to med school overall. I don't, I don't know. I feel like it's been a long time since we were in med school, but I don't know if there's any like advice you have of like dealing with med school and dealing with, you know, being a medical student. Um, yeah, I, Remember, there's just so much information all at once. And I remember even then having this, like knowing why I was there and keeping that with me. And um, there were two things that I like to do to sort of 
one was be involved with our global health group at UNMC because um, I'd been to Costa Rica already and saw a lot of things from a medical perspective that needed. I just saw the opportunities for global health and what that could mean and people who really needed it. And so I would take that with me. And when I was studying, I'd be like, oh gosh, I just have to know this because I could be in some country somewhere and someone's going to ask me this random fact. I'm not going to have internet. And that, that did happen uh, often with that uh, sort of golden surgeon, Dr. Ward. He'd be like, what medication do we do for this? I'm like, oh, I, I did learn that. So that's why I felt like studying was always for a purpose. And I feel like it didn't feel as bad or as like burdensome yeah. to have to do it that way. And then I tried to, there were times where I don't think I handled it super well, but I kept in contact with my family. And I think one of the biggest things for trying, I tell my third year uh, medical students is to stay in touch with those people who are outside of medicine. I've been so fortunate to have two friends who don't do medicine at all and who I have this like Marco Polo app with still to this day. So when I'm lonely, I'll call. And when I was in med school, they just kept me really sane and I can just call them and they'll tell me about like what their kids are doing in med school. It was like who they were dating and, you know, what kind of wedding they wanted to have. And I was like, wedding, what are you talking about? <laughs> 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 Want to be an amazing surgeon who helps millions of people. What, what, what is this wedding business that you're yeah. so worked up about? Um, but they sort of reground you and they remind you that there are things outside of medicine that are important. And sometimes they do it in a more aggressive way um, because they love you and you need that because we tend to start thinking like we're amazing and we know all these things and we're doctors and like, no, no, you're just, you're a normal person who does dumb stuff. That's what your family's for. And these yeah. people that have known you most of your life. And I still stay in touch with them and encourage my med students to do it. And I call them on my way home in residency. There's like five or six people, Kelly, one of our mutual friends who's a family medicine doctor in rural Nebraska. I call her like once a week. Because she's very, I don't know, I think she flourished. Kelly did med school, right? She, she, did. she got me. in and out she, quick. She knew exactly what she wanted to do. She would be a family medicine doctor. She got paid extra, I think, in her fourth year to do it. She studied just enough to pass. And then all of her boards and things. And then has this job that she loves in rural Nebraska. And she has way less stress than I did about everything. Yeah. <laughs> so happy. She's, yeah, like she, she's, been, she's been a board certified practicing physician for how many four years? Yeah, a, a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I'm still training. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's kind of like the different paths going through, but you're right. She was she was kind of a different path. Honestly, she would also be a good person to have as yeah. guest on the podcast, talking about like the rural medicine kind of route. Um, so we may we may invite her on at some point. Um, but yeah, I feel like, I feel like there were kind of like two big things in there. One is like keeping in touch with people and support network and like, like, don't, don't let it consume you because I feel like mm -hmm. sometimes medicine can consume you mm -hmm. where, um, you are just living in the basement of the med school with your two coffee pots hidden on campus. Um, so you can chug coffee all the time. Um, but I think the other thing you said is just like, like clarifying to yourself why you're doing it, right? Like, like somebody somewhere, I'm going to be without internet. Someone's going to ask me a question. Mm -hmm. I'm going to need this information for that. Um, something that helped me a lot is actually just, we, we had that, you know, the, like we'd have to do like 
I don't, I don't even remember what it was called now. We'd have to go work with physicians so many times. Ships, right? Yeah, the preceptorship. Uh, we would have to do that while we're in med school and go and like shadow physicians and sometimes do histories and physicals and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and I felt like very often I was feeling like really run down. And then I would go do that. And I'm like, oh, this is why I'm doing it. Like, I'm not in med school because I want to study and be in med school for all of my yeah. life. I'm doing this because this will enable me to get to the point of what I'm trying to do. That's actually something I know a lot of the students that are listening to this are like taking their MCAT and in the midst of applying to med school and things like that. That's something that I would encourage for you also. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that shadowing is really important when you're in undergrad is one, so you actually understand what it's like and you're not judging or basing your decisions off of watching House or Scrubs. Mm-hmm. Um, although those are great shows. Great shows. Yeah. Um, great anatomy too. Not gonna lie. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> Don't tell. Um, but I think it just like helps like going that, like it's good for your resume and it helps you understand medicine, but it also helps remind you why you're doing it. Um, and I think that's, that's huge. Like, what is it that, that drives you? Um, and realizing that these are tools. That's also something I know I talk about this way more in like the MCAT classes than I think any other instructor than like the other companies, but like those are like fluid dynamics is something that you need to understand if you're going to be a cardiologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And like understanding electromagnetic radiation and like nuclear decay, like nuclear physics, like why would a physician need to know that? Like if you're going to be a radiologist, you absolutely do. An oncologist, Yes, very much so. Like those are those are entire fields of medicine. Um, so if you find yourself wondering, like why why do I need to understand how a battery works, and you understand, like oh, that's related to metabolism, and like your um, electron transport chain is a lot like a, a galvanic cell or a voltaic cell. Like it's it's weird that. I feel like people don't talk about those things as much. And so like when you're studying, it feels like a burden because you don't realize, Hey, this is a tool that you may need at some point to help you kind of deal with an issue. Um, I feel like, especially in your case, if you're going somewhere where they don't have internet, I feel like most of the time it's like, I'll just look it up real quick. Um, But that's not always an option in the global surgery stuff. Or in surgery where you don't just like, well, that's not entirely untrue, but we don't often just like look something you're like in these 12 hour cases and you can just be like, Oh, let me just go look up that. And then yeah, like, real quick, like let me just in the go. middle of talking to a, a patient, like you can't just like, wait a minute, I got to go look something up. Cause yeah. that's when they request a different doctor. <laughs> when they're like, do it on the way and in between sometimes. But yeah. the other thing I really liked was research in med school. So I worked with, like you said, I would always get sort of reinvigorated whenever I would meet up with my mentor at the time who was a neurosurgeon. And it also helped me understand his life a little bit. And I truly, it'd be like six o'clock. He's like, Oh, it's the middle of my morning. And I'd be like, what the middle of your morning. That makes sense to me now. He's on his like second breakfast. Um, but I really loved the research and I think you can change a lot in people's lives by doing good clinical research. And I had the opportunity to work with him throughout med school. So when I was really burnt out, I just go to his office and study and work on my, uh, projects there if I needed a break. And it's odd because research has always been something that's been sort of therapeutic and uh, more fun for me. than, And that's why I think I hung out with all the PhD guys in med school because I really liked yeah. it. I was always interested in what you guys were studying and yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think you did that right because my favorite part of the research like world is just talking to people about their research. Like, yeah. I just want to like hear like, what are you doing? How are you studying? Oh, that's so cool! Like, I don't I don't really like being on the bench with pipettes. Um, maybe no, I'm a little bit like either. Yeah, no, I just I just want to talk to talk to the researchers and and like try to make connections, um, like connections between ideas, not like hobnobbing, um, yeah. but. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's, that there's, I feel like there's a lot kind of going on. I I'm just, I just looked at the clock. Like we're, we're longer than the normal podcast episode is. Um, but it's always fun to kind of like, you know, meet up with you and talk. And I know, um, this is, you, you guys probably don't need to know this from the podcast, but like the friends you make in med school, I just kind of want to take a, a quick pitch for that. Like you get really close with them. Um, and so like Alexis is great. And we do like every once in a while, we'll do big Zoom meetings and we'll play games online and things like that. Um, but I feel I feel really excited because I'm seeing you today and I'm going to see Joe in person tomorrow. And nice. that's um, kind of crazy seeing all, you know, the, the med school gang. Um, but so that, that's something to look forward to. I don't want I don't want students to be like, oh, it's all doom and gloom. And they talk about how awful it's going to be and how six o'clock is going to be the middle of my morning. Um, oh, well, it, it, not always. I do want to say I'm on a much easier rotation this month. And I woke up at I've been waking up at 630 and then operating right away and then going home at one. So it ebbs and flows on what is the middle of your morning. And uh, I think there are really great parts of medical school. And I agree the people that you meet there are still there most of the people I call on the phone Bill some I call because he's one of the smartest people I know if I don't if it's you know sometimes like oh, I don't know how to do this and then Joe is another one who I'm like I don't remember this mechanism at all I'm gonna but then I know I have like a three-hour conversation ahead of me so I don't know <laughs> yeah yeah like I, how much do I want to know about this like I, I, if you just want like, a little fact like then okay there might be another way to do this but if you want to know everything about it then then Thanks, there I'll you go um, but yeah. All right. Well, um, I just kind of want to throw out this, uh, like, like I mentioned, this is a weird podcast episode, you know, compared to how the podcast episodes normally go, but, um, hopefully some of you guys who are listening are kind of excited to learn more about some other fields of medicine, like global surgery and stuff like that. Like, uh, like I'll be honest, I didn't know that existed when I was in med school. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure that there are that that's kind of a new field for a lot of people. Um, but if you guys enjoyed this episode, like throw in the the comments, the 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 chats, like in any way that you can, um, depending on how you are listening to this. Um, but let us know if you if you thought this was good. You want to do more kind of like interviews with physicians. Um, as as we mentioned, I feel like we've name dropped a couple of people that honestly would be awesome to talk to for a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's been a pleasure. Um, I don't know if you have any last minute things you want to add in. It's all worth it. And it does get better. I think it's a long tunnel when you're studying for the MCAT. And then there's all these breaks and points where you're like, gosh, I just don't know if I'm going to make it to the next step, but it's definitely worth it. And keep doing it if you love it. And it's life comes and goes and changes your plans. And that's okay. There's a lot of different paths to the same way. I know mine seemed like it was, somewhat straightforward, but there are definitely some turns here and there. So just 
if you love medicine, you really want to do it, keep going. And, um, but take that time to do what you love to do like 30 minutes once a week, whether it's running, biking, art, playing games virtually with friends, you got to do it. Otherwise you'll, you'll go nuts. So. <laughs>